What does mental toughness mean to you? What does a mentally tough team look like? How do you know if your team needs mental toughness training? These are all questions that have started creeping through the ultimate world in recent years. Although there are certainly mentally tough teams, most ultimate players are unfamiliar with the concept of actually training their mental strength. Even worse, some players think they've got it all figured out themselves and are actually offended at the suggestion that they should improve their mental toughness. This week on the Urca podcast, guest Tina Booth will explain the principles of mental toughness and give suggestions on how to best implement them with your team. Tina is the coach of UMass Men's and the founder and director of the National Ultimate Training Camp. A note about today's format. Unfortunately, my interview with Tina was lost due to a tech issue, so I've instead borrowed audio from Tina's 2014 IRCA presentation titled 10 Steps to Mental Toughness. I will introduce concepts and provide some extra notes, and 2014 Tina will explain each concept. So, congrats, you get to hear my voice more than normal this week. Now then, what is mental toughness? As defined by Jones and colleagues in the Journal of Applied Sports Psychology, mental toughness is having the natural or developed psychological edge that enables you to cope better than your opponents with the many demands that sport places on a performer. It means to be more consistent and better than your opponents in remaining determined, focused, confident, and in control under pressure. Sounds great, doesn't it? The importance of being resilient under pressure should be obvious in the context of sport. But how do you get there? This is accomplished by athletes developing the ability to recognize when their mind has wandered and then bring it back into focus. This is the being in the moment that sportcasters love to talk about. The athlete is not focused on the score or the bracket implications or what people will say about this game on Twitter. They are only focused on performing at their absolute best. And the second that their mind drifts away from that, they get right back on performing their best. Now, I'll let Tina explain what exactly playing your best means as she defines peak performance. Next point is a definition of peak performance. This is the goal in having a strong program. Peak performance is when your team and you are playing at your best ability. It means that you are playing in the zone. This does not mean you are playing a zone, but you are playing in the zone. So if you were in my classroom now, I would say, tell me about a time where you really played unconsciously in a sport. It doesn't have to be ultimate, but it could be anything that you've done and you've achieved something that you didn't usually think you could do. So people, players would tell me that they remember um, getting ready to do a layout block and they achieved the block, but they don't actually remember making it. And I would say that they were in the zone. Because when you are in the zone and you are competing, everything kind of slows down. You don't hear the crowd. You don't worry about um, your legs. Everything is easy, light, and quick. 
And when things are easy, light, and quick, you know that you are at peak performance. If you are not in the zone, it feels terrible. And probably many of you in the audience have some examples of being not in the zone. And some examples of that are you're focusing on your blisters, or the people who are heckling you in the crowd, or the fact that you haven't gone in in six points and you're angry with the coach or captain. And when you finally go out, going, when you finally go into the game, you find that you don't have a throw that you usually have and you turf it or you throw it over someone's head. Being in the zone means you are thinking too much and you are not knowing what you should be able to do. So, if you run a really good mental toughness program and if you are dedicated to it as a team, not only will your individual athletes have moments of being in the zone, but you will have moments, hopefully towards the end of your season when the competition is getting tougher, where your entire team is in the zone. That has happened a number of times to me and the people that I coach, and it is a truly amazing feeling. Everything becomes effortless, everything is light, and regardless of how it comes out, the experience is really wonderful. But this is very difficult to achieve. Be in the zone. It sounds ideal, doesn't it? But as Tina says, this is hard to achieve. Let's take a step back now so we can understand what is actually happening in our athletes' bodies as their mind focuses in and out of the zone. You may be surprised to learn that there is a scientific, physiological reason that athletes turf throws or collapse under pressure. Now, Tina has much more experience than I do on this subject, so I'll go ahead and let her explain what is happening in the brain when an athlete feels pressure and shifts from the knowing part of the brain to the thinking part where danger lies. For those of you who listened to episode two with Brian Jones, you'll recall that Brian explained the same concept when he discussed how he works to get his players doing rather than thinking on the defensive side. Okay, basic physiology, front brain and back brain. Front brain is thinking. Back brain is knowing. When you are competing, you do not want to be in your front brain because once you are thinking, bad things are happening. If you are competing and you are in the back part of your brain, in the knowing part, good things can happen because knowing is much faster than thinking. And let me explain that a little bit more. Let's say you are in a pretty good place, you're in the knowing part, you're competing, everything feels pretty good, and then all of a sudden, one of your top players gets hurt. And it's not necessarily a terrible injury, but you know that that person is out for the rest of the tournament. All of a sudden, you're in the thinking part of your brain. And you're doing things like, oh my god, that was our deep, deep. Uh, he or she is out, and so how are we going to be able to run the zone? And it's windy, we should run our zone, and, and who can replace him? And I don't know. And, I, and as you are doing that, the blood in your body is going to your brain and to your lungs and your heart. And it is leaving your extremities. So 
The next time you go out and you're still thinking about this lost player, all of a sudden you're throwing an IO backhand over someone's head or you're turfing a flick because the blood is no longer in your extremities because you are in the front part of your brain. Another place you can see this is during March Madness where the game is very close. Um, you understand that they're under a lot of pressure. Someone's at the free throw line and they make the shot or they take the shot and they miss it short. Almost all the time when they uh, take foul shots under pressure, they miss it short because again, they're panicking and the blood has left their extremities and so they don't have it in the tip of their fingers and they're not able to throw it as far as they need to. You're not able to breathe, you're not able to catch, you're not able to run well. This is why people drop the pole at a crucial point. This is why people drop easy catches at a crucial point because they're thinking too much and not relying on what they know from all of their practice. Because what I'm talking about is not something kooky spooky, oh, everyone needs to do visualization and breathe and you know, kumbaya this and it's not. It's very much based in our physiology. Another example of this would be if you're bicycle riding. So you first learn to ride a bike and you get some help and you understand how it works. But now when you ride a bike, you don't think as you're riding, okay, I'm gonna push this pedal forward, it's gonna come back, I'll release it, I'll then go with the other one. You're not gonna do that because you're in the knowing part of biking and you don't have to think about it anymore. That's where you wanna get yourself and that's when, where you wanna get your ultimate team. And the next part of this, starting with five, is going to explain how you actually use concrete tools to get your team where you need to be in order to experience team peak performance. Okay, so now we understand what our athletes feel in pressure situations. How then do we guide them to stay in the knowing part of their brain? Think back to Tina's example of a star player getting injured and knocked out of the game. A player focusing on this will find themselves in the thinking part of their brain, draining valuable blood away from their arms and legs. Fixating on an injury is just one example of a broad category of uncontrollables. Uncontrollables are just that, things that are beyond your control. Other examples of uncontrollables may be the weather, the tournament format, or even the noisy neighbors next door to you in the hotel that kept you up all night. Focusing on these wastes valuable mental energy and distracts your mind from remaining in the knowing back brain. As a coach beginning a mental toughness regimen, a great place to start is by tackling these uncontrollables. Now we'll hear from Tina as she explains what uncontrollables are, give some examples, and discusses strategies to keep your players from focusing on them. The next part is talking about uncontrollables. Uncontrollables, obviously, are things that you cannot control. They are also competitive traps. If my classroom was full of players, I would ask them for a list of uncontrollables, and they would give me a list like, and again, this is at practice or at a tournament. Weather, the format. I cannot believe how much time people spend obsessing 
about the format and the seating at tournaments. Now, I understand if you are going to a tournament where you don't trust the people who are doing the seating. I've certainly been in that position. But if, if it's a, a USAU event and you know that the format is set and that they've done it fairly, then don't even think about it. Don't think about the seating. Who cares? If you want to do well, you have, have to not think about the seating and play whoever's across from you. You also do not want to talk about your opponent. No need to. You're focused on your own team. It's all about your own team, and that's all that matters. Crowds, ignore them. Playing time. If you are a player who is not getting the playing time you deserve, and you are at a tournament, you have to shelve your frustration over the lack of playing time until you can talk about it in a calm, reasonable place. Following the coach or captain off the field after they've spoken to the line that's out there and saying, when am I going to go in, does nothing for your team and shows that you are individually obsessed and do not see the larger picture. And again, you cannot control the score. Um, you just have to stop thinking about it. Some other uncontrollables are injuries. And this is a really tough one because obviously if a friend of yours on your team or even on the other team gets hurt badly, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not expecting you to just say, oh, uh, that's an uncontrollable. I don't care that their uh, leg bone is coming out through their skin. That's ridiculous. But I've also seen teams that one person goes down with a sprained ankle or whatever and everyone rushes over and what's going on? And, you know, there's all these oohs and ahs. That is counterproductive to being part of a team during competition. So I would suggest that you have some kind of protocol for someone when someone is injured. So-and-so goes to the injured person, so-and-so calls uh, the trainer over, et cetera, et cetera. Plan for these kind of things. The other thing is bad calls. People, not only do they love to get, often get into uh, discussions about what the call is, but they like to bring up calls from the year before. And then, then that really becomes distracting. So I would suggest also, for calls, have some kind of protocol. So there's a dispute. The two people try to deal with it. Perhaps you have someone on the field who can add a little bit. But what you don't want is two people talking and then the rest of the team showing up like they're the gangs in West Side Story. That is counterproductive and is not what our sport is all about. So uncontrollables, you have to not talk about them. And another way to say that is no complaining. If you constantly run your mouth and complain, about your ankle, or your twisted pinky, or the fact that you didn't eat well and you need to go visit the Porter John every four minutes. That is going to bring your team down. Maybe you can have one friend that you talk about it, but if you are constantly talking about what is wrong with you or the opponents or the format or the weather, why don't you just go home? Because there's no point in competing. Competing does not guarantee you're going to be in an ideal situation. Actually, I think if you are committed to competition, you're going to be guaranteed that you're going to be in a non-ideal situation. So suck it up, don't complain, and don't waste any kind of time on any of these things. Points you can take home from that section. Develop a protocol for handling things like injuries and calls. For injuries... You could designate two or three players responsible for helping up teammates, getting them off the field, and getting them to the trainer if needed. These players may be your captains, or 
They could be anyone. Another protocol you could have is for handling bad calls. If some of your players have a history of reacting poorly to calls, you can assign each of them a buddy. Whenever they think that an unjust call has been made, they have to explain to their buddy why they thought it was unfair. And then it's the buddy's responsibility to make sure that both sides remain composed when discussing the call with their opponent. You can make your own example of these protocols, but the point is you should be prepared to deal with uncontrollable situations. Another tip for dealing with uncontrollables that I personally love and use, I borrowed from Maddie Sang's ERCA presentation. What Maddie likes to do if the weather is excessively cold, hot, or wet, is to give a 5 to 10 second complaining window in the very first huddle. So if it's freezing cold outside, I'll huddle up my team and tell them, okay, you have 10 seconds to complain as much as you want about the cold. After that, you've used up your complaints for the day. Now, while I don't suggest doing this every single day as it can start to feel a little gimmicky, it is a fun way for the whole team to acknowledge that, yes, this weather is awful, and I understand that. Then, throughout the day, if someone starts to complain about the weather, I'll often hear my players slyly tell them that, no, you can't complain about the weather, we already did that. If you make sure to present this in a positive light, it is a great way to keep spirits up in suboptimal conditions. Now, that's a great thing to use on day one of a tournament. However, ultimate tournaments are long, arduous affairs. Two days of constant games is a grind. It's exhausting mentally and physically. So how can you make sure that you're able to bring your team's focus back to being in the zone and being in the moment late into the day? This very question was asked during the live stream of Tina's 2014 talk, and here's her response. Yeah, I mean, that's the tough part about competition. Um, I know I spoke about in the my presentation about making the switch, and, you know, you ask uh, during practice for players to make the switch from being, you know, maybe in la-la land to being a competitor, and I do that... Some, I do something similar during tournaments. And so let's say you've just lost a tough game at double game point and you still have games to play. Um, I give them the five or ten minutes to be miserable and to talk and to just, you know, recriminate if they need to. And then I ask them to come back and say, okay, make the switch. We're letting that go. We're not thinking about where we're going to dinner. We just have another game in front of us. And if you use that language during practice, and it, you get them to respond, when you use it during a tournament, they will hopefully also respond. And then the other, you know, very concrete um, part of that is you just have to always make sure people are taking care of their uh, hydration and nutrition. And I know people who try to skip it, and they're just, it's an intense game, and I don't need to eat, but you absolutely really do. The switch that Tina refers to here is, of course, moving from the thinking brain to the knowing brain. And she'll talk about that again in a moment. And this brings me to my final point, that all mental toughness training protocols are rooted in practice. Just as you wouldn't introduce a brand new zone 
in the finals of a tournament, you don't want to drop a whole new language and systems for mental toughness in a game. This has to be developed at practice. You need practice as a coach to make sure that you can keep spirits up and keep minds in the zone. Your team needs practice shifting to their knowing brain and maintaining that state of being in the zone. It is absolutely crucial that you instill mental toughness training at practice if you want to see the best possible results. So, our final audio clip of Tina for today will be her explanation of how to put a mental toughness training program into practice. And in this clip, she gives some great tips that you can put into practice right now. So here she is. So I'm gonna start with practice first. And again, we've got this team that is committed to going to a new place in terms of their success. And they need to know how they're going to reach that while they're at practice. So. First thing I want to say is, if you have a mediocre practice, it will lead, this is pretty obvious, but sometimes I think people forget it, to mediocre play. If you consistently practice being mediocre and not committed to doing what you're supposed to do in practice, I guarantee that you will be able to replicate that in games. You cannot practice, you cannot perform if you do not practice in that way. You cannot produce what you do not practice. So, people show up at practice, and you ask them to make the switch. And I ask them to do it at practice because I want them to be able to do that in games. And that means when you make the mental switch, switch you leave everything from your past behind, and you stop thinking about the future. And all that matters is what you are doing right now, whether it is active throwing, whether it is dynamic warm-up, whether it is the first um, drill that you're going to do of practice. So one of the things I do, and this is a really easy exercise, just takes a couple minutes, is I ask everyone to get in a circle, just to get them you know, ready to play, and I time for a minute how long they can stand on one foot with their eyes closed without going back and forth. And it is a really good way to get teams excuse me, individual players centered, and it doesn't take long. I actually stole this from Kayla Burnham uh, from Northeastern University, so I need to give her credit. And I've been doing it with the last few years, and it's been really effective. So you get everyone there, you can start, for 30, start with 30 seconds, they close their eyes, you time them, they lift up one foot, and if they start going like this, they put the foot down and do it again. And then you have them do the other foot. And if you do that just for, I think, even a week, you can see remarkable improvement. And I give them different cues that can help them. So sometimes it helps if you're holding a tree or if you're holding a ballet bar in front of you or if you count like this. It helps people really focus. And after they do that, they are more mentally ready to listen to what you're going to do. When you are putting practice together, you want to be focused on everyone's process goals. And a process goal is something concrete and measurable and distinct. So you might have a new player on your team that is struggling with a flat forehand. And so they want to be able to throw 10 flat forehands in a row. And that's all they're going to work on. Maybe someone else needs to have a more consistent IO forehand. And that's what they're going to work on. So you can uh, tailor 
certain parts of practice for people to just work on what they need to do. Everyone does not have to be doing the same thing all the time. In addition, when I start coaching a team, I tell them that the concept of a big game is ridiculous. Because again, you can't produce what you don't practice. And what I prefer them to all work toward is having a big practice. And a big practice means that you show up, you're ready to go, and you are able to be focused on what you're supposed to do for almost the entire time. If you drift, you come back. Maybe you do a couple things you haven't been able to do before. But throughout the whole, you know, the whole practice, two or three hours, you are 100% mentally in it. Then at the end of practice, we'll circle up and I'll say, and I do this on two levels, I said, who had a pretty good practice? And they'll raise their hand. And I'll say, well, who had a big practice? And usually like one or two will raise their hand. You know, give them a little bit of applause. It's, it's hard to get a big practice. But over a course of, let's say, practicing for a month, it's not that hard. You should be able to get one pretty often. It, I also, I acknowledge by sit, asking them, who had a struggle practice? Because sometimes no matter what you do, you're just struggling. You're just struggling and you try to get yourself out of it and you can't. And if you have a struggle practice, it is just as important to acknowledge that because that shows that you're aware of where you are. And your coach understands that and it's like, okay, yeah, you did have a struggle practice. It's nothing personal. They just couldn't replicate what they wanted to. And often when someone has a struggle practice, they follow it up with a big practice in the next day or so. Um, in addition, I told you before, there's no complaining. You have to work hard all the time at new skills. Your practices should be harder than games. And that means physically harder, for the most part. You want people to be exhausted. I like to do uh, sprints in the middle of practice, and really hard sprints in the middle of practice, because then they have to play when they're tired. And replicating fatigue during competition while you still have to play is really important. So do that during practice. You need to push each other, and that doesn't mean bully each other. That just means when you see someone fading, doing really hard sprints, you go over there and cheer for that person. You're on a team. There's a reason you're on your team. You're not on a team for individual glory. You're on a team for team glory. And finally, and we're back to this, you do not want to keep track of the score when you're practicing. You have to practice not keeping track of the score. So I have one of those flip charts. I'll do different things. Um, we'll start a scrimmage. Instead of being a scrimmage to three, it'll be uh, it's a scrimmage to eight. Eight is half. You're down five, three, uh, and you're receiving. And give them actual game situations. Then also with the flip chart, sometimes I'll just put weird scores in there. Because I want them to have the score not matter so much that they have nothing left to do than just play. And when your team is just playing, and when your team is playing unconsciously, then you are in peak performance. Hearing how Tina conducts her practices should give you a good idea of why her teams are consistently competing for national titles. If your players are used to having a practice that is tougher and more strenuous than the actual game, then the game becomes easy. They're comfortable on the field squarely in the knowing brain, and performing at their peak. 
I hope that today's episode was still useful to you all, despite the unusual format. Um, and I apologize, obviously, for the tech issues. This episode concludes our season one of the Urca podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Um, I would love to hear your feedback. You can email me at jack at ultiresults.com. You can find us on Twitter at ultiresults. And I really would like to know what you thought about this season. Um, it has been a great experiment for me, and I've really enjoyed producing it. And I'm really excited to get to work on season two. We'll shift gears from focusing on coaching and how coaches operate and structure practices and so on, and focus more on individual players, how you perform at your peak as a player. Obviously, we'll talk about mental toughness, but we'll also talk about training. We'll talk about throwing. We'll talk about catching, how you practice every aspect of the game, how you put it together, and everything related to that. Um, I'm really excited. We've got some great guests coming on, and it'll be really useful to you, I think, um, if you are a player listening to this. And it may be useful if you have players in mind that could benefit from listening to them, so let them know. That's it for today. Thank you all for sticking around and listening. And I hope to hear from plenty of you and hope to have you all back for season two in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.